in some ways, like I said, he is an amalgam of a Nixon Republican and an old AFL CIO Democrat. You know, he had an opportunity to recast what the Republican coalition was to be a lot more of sort of a working class party than was traditionally viewed of Republicans. But that's not really how he plays. So we'll see. Hello, and welcome to the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. I'm interview editor Lucy Schmitz. I had the chance to sit down with GU Politics fellow Antonia Ferrier. Antonia has played a role in some of the most important policy debates of the last two decades, including tax reform, health care, trade, addressing the financial crisis, and judicial confirmations. She was the staff director of the Senate Republican Communications Center, a critical part of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's communications operation, which also served as the central messaging hub for all Senate Republicans. Antonia served as senior advisor and communications director to Senate Finance Committee ranking member Orrin Hatch. She also worked in House Republican leadership first for Republican Whip Roy Blunt, and then Republican leader John Boehner. She now works as a partner at Definers Public Affairs. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, thank you for joining us on the Georgetown Public Policy Review. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Republican Party itself in this moment. Indeed. An interesting Um, thing. So I wanted to get your take on how the party has shifted post-2016 and Mm -hmm. since the Trump election? Sure. There's a lot to unpack. Um, I'll just start by saying political parties are always messy. Mm -hmm. They're the sums of the people that inhabit them. Um, They shift and change over time. And you can see that historically with both the Democrat and Republican parties. Um, Like the Democratic Party used to be the Free Trade Party. The Republican Party used to be the Anti-Trade Party. Post-World War II, things got realigned. And, you know, there's always sort of shifts and realignments. Um, I think to think about 2016 and the Republican Party, and a lot of folks want to start with Trump. I would actually start earlier to then understand President Trump. So under President Reagan, it, there was the, the, the adage was that there were the three legs of the Reagan Republican stool. Number one was conservative on social policy on social issues, uh, a hawkish, globalist, hawkish um, national security posture. And the third was sort of fiscal conservatism. Um, And that's, there's a lot to unpack within each of those, but that was sort of the three. We had a situation where that all worked and there was a lot of unity because there was a common enemy overseas. That was the Soviet Union. Uh, so there was a, it was sort of easier in some ways in this recalibrated Republican Party to keep everyone together because the common enemy makes sense. You had the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And at that point in time, there was not a real discussion or reflection about what a Republican Party would be with that sort of paradigm coming apart. Um, so you then had Bill Clinton won, President Bush lost. And then after eight years of President Clinton, you had George W. Bush. There were obviously the 9-11 attacks 
And there was, again, no real discussion of what it was to be a Republican. Did that traditional Reagan stool still apply? Those three planks, we, the United States obviously went to war in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, was very divisive, both domestically and obviously very costly from an international sort of profile. Republicans lost in 2008. Senator McCain lost to President Obama. In all these conversations, though, during this entire period of time, there was no real sort of discussion about what it meant to be a Republican. You had sort of your traditional Republicans who were low taxes, robust national security policy. Those three still existed, but there was never really a real reckoning about what it meant. And you think back to, say, the history of this country, we are a strange superpower. Now, I know there are a lot of people who say we butted in around the world a bit. We're not really uh, we're not really remotely in the mold of what the French or the British or even the Chinese historically have done, the Japanese. We are a reluctant superpower. We are large. We have Canada to the north. We have Mexico to the south. We have ocean, ocean on both sides. It is in our nature to look inward because we are so big. And so I think after sort of a robust 50-year period of time of confronting the Soviets, that threat was gone. A a lot of criticism about President Bush's foreign policy. There was a sort of collapse for a lot of reasons of a more internationalist approach on national security affairs. And so it was almost like President Trump, he's almost a throwback to a Republican that hasn't existed since maybe the 60s. And so to me, he's not new. He's actually quite old. And in some ways, he's not Republican as in the definition of a Reagan Republican at all. He's a combination of a Nixon Republican, and I don't mean that in any way based off of impeachment. I think he's a bit of a, a, a Nixon Republican but I think he's also a 1970s AFL-CIO Democrat. And so you have just a new brand of Republican. There, And I would say the party is more split, is still remains exceptionally split on a lot of these issues. But, you know, he's the 800-pound gorilla. The way our government functions, so much power over time has been given to the executive on things like trade, national security, other issues, where he just gets to do. And there's very little that Republicans in, say, Congress can do to change his policy decisions. They don't have ball control. They don't have the votes to stop him. So to me, it's like, is he the Republican Party of now, post-16? I think you've seen more of that in the House of Representatives. That's just sort of how the House is. But it is also almost a remarkable thing to think about a president having as much division within his party in the presidency as Trump has. I know there's a lot in the press that's reported about how pliant Republicans are doing Trump's well. You really have not seen in modern history this much division within one of the party of the presidency. Certainly did not happen in Obama. You can just go back. There was some division under Reagan, sort of different factions and camps, which is not unusual. But this has never been this amount of criticism um, from within the party. And that's um, frankly because 
the president was not a politician and he has um, stepped on or he doesn't care about some of the mores and traditions that have sort of lined political parties. The other thing I would just say to remember about political parties, there's a misunderstanding that the party's structures are powerful. They're not. Um, we do not have a parliamentary system. In Britain, the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, if you have fissures and divisions, the party leadership can literally put their boot to uh, an agitator's neck and get them to break. It's in all of the Western um, democratic systems except the United States. There is tremendous power in the party heads. There is very little, which means you then have a situation whereby anyone can go in and be whatever they want to be and do whatever they want to do. And uh, that's sort of what we have with President Trump. During 16, there were a lot of my Democrat friends and family would say, you guys can do things to stop him. There is there is nothing. There are even Democrats have superdelegates. They're going sort of by the wayside. There is no superdelegates. The only thing that shapes a primary process for 16 was actually the calendar. That was it. This was a total open free-for-all. And President Trump took advantage of years of unhappiness um, after the financial crisis, the war, the big stimulus under Obama, and then what culminated in the Affordable Care Act, um, which Republicans call Obamacare. You had the Tea Party movement, and you just had people were fed up uh, with Washington. And then you had people like Senator Cruz who took advantage of the anger to sow discontent within Republican-based voters and sort of undermine them over a period of time that ultimately the biggest outsider of all Donald Trump could come in and um, take over. But he's not moored to any of those sort of traditional Republican views in a lot of ways. And the question is, to me, like, how has he changed the Republican Party since 2016? He certainly has changed it. I just don't know what it means moving forward. But I also think part of it is that he's not a cause. He's a symptom or, or an effect of decades of change on, and a real reckoning that never happened after the Soviet collapse. So what I just don't know moving forward, if you assume wins or loses in 20, uh, is a whole other question. But I don't know what the where the Republican Party will be after this because in some ways, like I said, he is an amalgam of a Nixon Republican and an old AFL CIO Democrat you know, he had an opportunity to recast what the Republican coalition was to be a lot more of sort of a working class party than was traditionally viewed of Republicans. But that's not really how he plays. So we'll see. Uh, but it's uh, been an interesting ride to watch. <laughs> For sure. Um, that's a really fascinating way to think of it. I hadn't thought of the context for Trump extending all the way back to the fall of the Soviet Union. That's new for me. I really appreciate that. Um, But you brought up um, that a great deal of the media coverage of Republicans in Congress tends to be about the more extreme parts of the party, not Mm -hmm. only congressionally, but also in terms of covering the base and covering Trump's policies. Um, and what do you think more moderate members of your party can uh, can do to break through and to have uh, to <laughs> sort of bring a counterbalance to the party? So uh, my former boss, Senator McConnell, says there are two types of politicians that come to Washington. Those who 
uh, like to make a difference and those who like to make a point. Um, he, to, to boil it that down in a more extreme version, it's, it's those who want to get attention versus those who are trying to move an agenda. Some of those, you know, the question is, what are, what are, what are these politicians trying to be here? And you can see this is rewarded on the left and the right, right? It's the incentive structure with the press is the more incendiary you are on the left or the right, the more coverage you will get. And we definitely saw that in 2016. Yep, we sure did. And we continue to see that, you know, um, sort of across both parties. Um, if you look at Democrats right now, for example, there's, well, I think it's like 20 to 30 of the Democrats in this new majority came from Trump districts. They're moderate. But they can't, you would not even know who they are because the only thing the press covers are three of their newly elected Democrats in the House. Now, but it ends up being a self-fulfilling cycle. And you can see this with Senator Cruz even before that. Um you know this is going to get you more, the sort of more incendiary you are, the more you act and play that role, the more coverage you get, the more support you get, the more money you get to run all of those things. So if you want to, it depends what you're, what you're doing to, what your point is, right? If you want to be a media darling and that's what you want to do, there's, there's plenty of opportunity for you. If you want to be a real legislator, that's a different role. And I don't even know if it's moderate or liberal or conservative because there are where, there are areas where liberals and conservatives can come to an agreement. Um, it's just a question of whether you want to actually put in the time to come up with a legislative solution or put ideas on the table to move things forward. And, you know, so it's really, what do you want to be? You, it requires much more patience to become a good legislator. So I will tell a quick story that I think sort of illustrates that point and it is about my former boss and it's so such a funny and out of character story. But back in 1984, President Reagan ran re-election. Um, and that's what everyone remembers about 1984 is he won re-election. Congressional Republicans got destroyed and Senator McConnell was just elected by only, I think, a thousand votes, a very small margin. Kentucky used to be a pretty blue state, but a different kind of blue state than the blue states we think of now. And so there was a storyline that was, it was the Republican who won in this wave. And there was sort of a wipeout, a washout uh, by, of Republicans by Democrats. And so he started believing his own press. Everyone wanted to talk to him. The guy who won. How did he do it? Blue Kentucky. Crazy race. All of this. And he really did. He started believing his press. And he tells the story that after he one and he was letting this get to his head he went to a restaurant and um a waiter he'd ordered like a baked potato i mean this is like throwback to the 80s no one orders a baked potato now but with his steak whatever it was he was eating and so the meal came and he asked for some butter which one would want with a baked potato and the waiter had forgotten and so he then stopped the waiter a little while and he said uh excuse me do you know who I am? And the waiter said, no. And he's, and then the waiter said, do you know who I am? And Senator McConnell said, no, who are you? And he said, I'm the guy with the butter. <laughs> <laughs> and Senator McConnell tells that story to say, 
I had to basically, he doesn't speak like this, but he had to check himself. He was the most lowly ranked senator. He was the least seniority of anyone in the entire United States Senate. And he learned one thing, that fame is illusory, that if you want to influence and impact, you've got to find the areas you want to work in and slowly work. He went on to, he was the chairman of the ethics committee um, in the 80s when a gentleman from Oregon, Bob Packwood, who was a pretty lecherous and disgusting man, um, harassed a lot of women. He, uh, working with, with Barbara Boxer of California, basically kicked him out of the Senate. But it was slow, methodical, working through. And over time, he now is the Senate Majority Leader. You can look at that on both sides of the aisle with people who have sort of gotten up to, you know, senior leadership positions. And it's usually the people who are trying to immediately come to Washington and become the next it kid or the next it congresswoman or senator trying to get headlines that typically are not the ones who end up being the most impactful legislatively. So if you want to make a difference and if you want to be a good legislator where you put points on the board to make change, it requires slow, steady patience. Good advice for a lot of careers, I think. I think that's right. I'm especially interested in this coming from your sort of communications background. Um, there's a lot of discussion that the Republican Party has difficulty reaching out to younger voters. Totally. Terrible. <laughs> they did and, a terrible job. And I was wondering how you think the party should change its messaging um, or change its policies, perhaps, to appeal to well, the, a newer generation. I think it's a little bit of both. But, um, you know, there was... I think... It requires time and effort. Um, sometimes, you know, the, uh, everyone who's listening to this podcast, sometimes, you know, it's like a friend is in, in a bad spot. Sometimes just making a phone call, going to coffee for dinner, going for a drink. Sometimes being there and showing up and listening is really important. Now, I'm not trying to say just showing up is going to change everything for, for the Republican Party with various groups. Um you know, if you're talking about huge discrepancy between for women voters, for example, but it certainly would help. I grew up in a suburb of Boston. I grew up in a very democratic part of the country with a very democrat family. Um, I find that when I have the opportunity to explain and express my views, um, that people sort of stop and say, "Oh, okay." They may not agree with me, but it's they'll give me a sort of a second look. It is easy for politicians to just stay on both sides of the aisle, to stay within their comfort zones, to just talk to this, the people that agree with them or even argue with them um, within you know their party. It takes a lot of work to go outside of sort of the traditional coalitions of people that back you. And so the short answer, I think, number one is showing up. And so there are some... Republicans who do a better job at it than others. There was a guy back in the 80s named Jack Kemp. He was really dogged about going into urban America and talking about how a lot of liberal policies were actually not good for people who were trying to get out of poverty. And he showed up and he explained and he spent the time and talked through and explained. Um, 
you have someone like Senator Scott of South Carolina, Tim Scott, who is from a very disadvantaged part of South Carolina. Um, he was raised by his grandmother. He has an unbelievable story. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He goes into, into non-traditional Republican communities. Now, he's also African-American. Um, so I think, number one, start with, for Republicans to do better, they've got to show up um, and they've got to tell their side of the story. Now, there is not a unanimity of um, opinions on we're not unified in terms of policy, right? So it's hard to say we as a Republican Party believe this because there are so many different camps, um, so many different viewpoints. But that is number one. Um, and I think the same could be said for, for women voters as well. I will say in particular, when it comes to women voters in this party right now, frankly, the reality is, and this is probably a little too brusque to say, I think the biggest challenge for women voters or the Republicans is the president himself. Um, he turns off women hugely um, for a lot of different reasons, which we don't need to get into here. So I think it's going to be very difficult to win back some of those voters just given where he is. But I also just I just think there's we also tend to think about everything from a federal level. I think there are a lot of different kinds of Republicans. There are different kinds of Republicans in New England, where I'm from. Charlie Baker is a Republican governor from Massachusetts. He's a very different kind of person than Donald Trump, for example. Um, so, you know, being a Republican who looks at state and local issues is also really important. Um, and also sort of expressing one of the big sort of division lines um, over the past 20, 30 years have been social issues. I actually think a lot of Republicans say in the Northeast and on the West Coast, when it comes to some of these issues like gay marriage, they're for gay marriage. It's just that, again, the media in a lot of ways rewards the more incendiary. And so you only hear Steve King of Iowa and you don't hear that Charlie Baker of Massachusetts is absolutely fine with X, Y, or Z issue. So the incentive structure is always to hear the most incendiary, but bottom line, Republicans need to show up and just be willing to say, I disagree with the party on this and I agree with it on that. And, uh, and that will pay some dividends down the road. Well, this is a great transition. Thank you. Um, because I wanted to talk to you about your work at the Senate Republican Communications Center. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of the diverging points of view within the party. Can you describe a little bit your role in coordinating the messaging of different types of Republicans across yeah. the across the caucus? So I had two roles. It was one to beat up the Democrats. Sorry, Democrats. <laughs> I have lots of friends. Uh, to point out their inconsistencies, whatever it may be, but also to, to promote issues and areas where there was agreement. Um, the first two years of the Trump administration, um, notwithstanding the activities within the administration itself, that's sort of a separate piece, you know, the firings, all the tumult within the administration. But from a legislative perspective, there were a lot of things that we did do um, and tried to promote it. Now, the, again, I'm not trying to blame the media. I My whole career has been working for the press, and I support what they do, obviously. Um the challenge, though, is, again, it's there was an, a joke that goes back to, I think, like the 1930s. The joke is what's black, white and red all over a newspaper that is not fundamentally changed. So a big piece of legislation to combat the opioid crisis is really important, but it's maybe not going to get the attention that 
say, division gets. Um, and in particular, over the last couple of years, a lot of the intrigue out of the administration itself. So it's really hard to positively message on things or break through, I should say, um, really hard to break through when there's just this city, the bubble of this dramatic city is uh, just very difficult to get that out there. So there were some things we, you know, so the opioid bill, we did a lot of different things. And it was uh, across many committees, matters in a lot of states. Um, this unifies like uh, Senator McConnell and Senator Markey of Massachusetts. They worked on a piece of that, of this legislation. There was a lot of work that was done by members on both sides of the aisle. The opioid crisis is obviously huge from states like Massachusetts, Kentucky, Ohio, everywhere. Um, and so you sometimes have to find different ways to try and break through. And that means frequently going home, meaning members going home and talking about it in their states, or if you're in the house in their districts and also talking to their local media to try and break through as well, because you're just not, like I said, that incentive structure in this, in Washington is not such where, you know, if you get a big bipartisan bill through, it doesn't typically gain the coverage of say a government shutdown which is sort of mm -hmm. obvious to, to all. So I would just say to further on that, we always tried to find, you know, we would message off whatever bill we had on the floor or if there was real progress in some area. Um, and we always sort of tried to notch up our, our wins and our victories because it also helped. A lot of what I did was, yeah, try to get sort of points on the board in the press, um, but also through original content to tout our message to help, but also to help these Republican senators and their offices with information that could help them promote what they were doing and what the Senate Republican Conference writ large was doing back home as well. So it was great because you get to work across so many different committees and different policy areas. Some I'm personally better at that than others. Um, you know, when the last year of the Obama administration, there was a huge, uh, a uh, piece of legislation that took a lot of time to get through. Uh, it's called 21st Century Cures. It's updating the FDA in some ways. Um, did a whole bunch of different things. Um, we renamed part of it after Bo Biden, um, Vice President Biden's son who had died of cancer. So there are some really wonderful sort of moments and things you get to promote. Um, and it's finding opportunities to, to get that story out um, across different, all sorts of different communications platforms. But, you know, the press doesn't always want to cover good news. <laughs> in your roles, uh, both advising and speaking for many senators across many complex policy issues, do you have any tips or suggestions or ideas about how to make pol complex policy digestible for non-wonks? Yes. <laughs> well, I'm going to say, I, I feel like I'm talking to some graduate students to here. So I'm going to start with the most basic thing, which is not even politics or policy. It is, I feel like everyone needs to read a little more Ernest Hemingway. Um, short declarative sentences using active voice. Now, I say that because there are so many times, and this has happened to everyone, where you read something and you say, I have no idea what this person is trying to say. And then you'll say to that person, I read this and I don't really know what you're trying to say. And then they'll say, what I mean is this. And you say, well, then write that. So the best way to communicate well and clearly is to understand 
number one, what it is that you're trying to do with a bill. And because if you don't understand that at some base level, you're not going to be able to communicate it. And the wonderful thing about writing is writing is just a means of expressing what's in your brain. Uh, Again, I'm stating the obvious here. If you can write it clearly, that means you understand it at its essence. Um, now, some policies are really complicated. Uh, bef- you know, before we, I sat down, we were talking about uh, copyrights. I don't know anything about copyrights. I know it's complicated, and I know it's a purview of the Judiciary Committee. I know there's a lot of lawyers involved. But you've got to sort of start with... If you're a communications person working on, say, the Senate Judiciary Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, you have to start by forcing the policy staff to say, what is it that we're trying to accomplish in this bill? Clearly, and get it down to one sentence. Get it down to your lead. Get it down to that one thing. Because once you've then figured out what it is that it's tr- you're trying to do, there could be various provisions that are complicated and confusing and who knows what agency here, there, and everywhere. But you got to start with understanding what it is. And once you go from there, then you can build everything out from there. And so I think the biggest piece of advice I can say, writing clearly means you're thinking clearly and force uh, policy people to explain and help them because communications people need to help policy people to explain what it is they're trying to accomplish with a piece of legislation. And... It sounds easier said, it's easier said than done because sometimes I think with the policy folks, they sort of sometimes can lose sight of what it is that they're doing in a bill. Oh, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Communicating clearly and quickly seems especially important sort of in the age of social media politics. And I I know that there's some controversial uh, use of social media, obviously by our president, but more generally, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how both parties or Republicans specifically should use social media, especially in light of infiltration of, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all these sources by Russians and other bad actors. So there's a lot to be (laughs) said about social media. The advantage of social media is obviously you're going direct to voter, direct to constituent, going direct to your people. And that's great. You don't have to worry about a reporter mischaracterizing something or telling a story that you don't think it's told right, you can go directly on Facebook and you can post a video or explain, do whatever it is that you want to do, and you can explain it there. Same on Twitter. But a couple things I would just, before getting into the sort of the malignant behavior by foreign actors, all the social media platforms should be used, but you have to understand what their purpose is and who is on them. Twitter, We looked at Senator McConnell's, um, the analytics um, behind his majority leader Twitter account. The three areas of the country that follow him, number one, Washington, D.C., number two, New York City, number three, Los Angeles. They were not Kentucky people. These are not Kentuckians. And so we do it because reporters and advocates are on Twitter, but it is a distortion. It is not real in a lot of ways. It's just another means of getting your message out. And so if you're a policymaker, that's what you need to think about. There's a lot more these days in the era of AOC and Beto O'Rourke and Donald Trump, frankly, of, you know, it's another way of getting at like who you are, your authentic moment. Like Elizabeth Warren, she announced with a beer in her hand and her dog. Now, to me personally, this is just a me thing. 
I'm not interested in that from a president. I want someone who acts presidential. So I'm some weird throwback to some other age where, you know, I want some, I don't want to say regal because I've got a decidedly small R Republican view about like monarchies and aristocratic societies. But I just mean there's some due dignity and respect to the office. So some of these moments where it's like, you know, AOC who's in her kitchen, you know, shaving her legs or whatever. There was some, I, that's just not for me. That's just not for me. But there, there is a lot of that pressure on these politicians to show them as being real people. Again, I understand why that's important. It's just not really my thing. But it's just another way of getting your message out, whether it be on policy, etc., or a way to continue to sort of showcase the brand that a politician is trying to be. Now, celebrities do the exact same thing. You figure out what your brand is and you own it in that space. Um, for younger politicians, like I mentioned, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's doing the very sort of of her generation and era. That's what she does. Um, now, but it's, it's getting message out. So... Thinking about infiltration by various malignant actors, um, Russia, China, etc. One of my colleagues is a gentleman named Matt Rhodes, and he ran Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. Most people would probably be surprised to know that the Chinese actually did infiltrate the Romney campaign in 2012. This is not new. Uh, it's by that I mean foreign actors trying to influence presidential campaigns and campaigns is not new at all. Um, we could probably go to the founding of the Republic, the French, the English at various points in time trying to influence. Um, so that is just a constant. Um, what is a little different now is obviously it's just the ease of which you can get, it's frankly propaganda is what we're talking about using these various different platforms to get propaganda out to in support of a candidate or to uh, attack another candidate. And we saw that frequently in 2016. Um, so that's propaganda. And the second piece is actually attacking our electoral systems, which is a different thing. Um, that's, you know, cyber attacks. And we saw some cyber attacks um, back in 2016 of the NRCC where there were actual, I, I can't even remember who it was. It may have been the Chinese were trying to hack into uh, the NRCC's email server and all of that. So there's two sort of different things. Um, what, and I think we just, what do you do? And I think there's a big challenge in this country because you're talking about, people have always spread disinformation, whether it's foreign or domestic. Here it's, trying to figure out who's doing it and then making sure there's no negative consequences of acting too severely. So by your impacting free speech. So I think for a lot of these social media platforms, there has to be a real debate over, you know, we're talking about content that, you know, for a lot of conservative speech is a really important thing. And um, there is a lot of unhappiness that, they feel that in academic settings in particular, they don't feel like they're allowed to have a voice. Um, rightly or wrongly, that is the feeling. Um, so just there has to be in confronting some of what is basically propaganda campaigns from from foreign actors. Like we just need to balance that against making sure, from my perspective anyways, that people's First Amendment rights are not impacted. I don't think that's an easy, I don't think it's an easy question to answer. And I think policymakers are gonna struggle with this. 
a lot. Um, I just want to bridge the gap to your current career. <laughs> um, right now, my understanding is that you're working with corporations in sort of the private sector uh, yep. doing similar work. And I just wanted to know if there are any strategies or what strategies and lessons you learned from political advising and communications that carry over to the private sector. So, yeah, I think that's, that's a good question. I've thought about this a little bit. Um, you know, it's easy doing, in some ways, doing communications on the Hill or in campaigns. Um, you have built-in press corps. You have a built-in audience of people who are always, who make it easy for you. I'll be honest with you, working for the Senate Majority Leader is easy to get press. Sure, it's newsworthy. Right? He, is, he walks out of his office. It's a lot harder when you're working for someone who doesn't have that much influence and sort of prestige or whatever. In some ways, I tell people when they start in politics and want to go into communications, I'm like, go work for someone who has no profile because it'll make you scrappy. It'll make you try and figure out ways to be better because um, you don't have the advantage. When you're working for in, in the Senate for someone like the majority leader or like a secretary of like treasury, you get to make your own news on a daily basis. So going to the other side of things, it's been, you're, it's what I'm doing is sort of another component of lobbying in some ways. You're trying to figure out a way to impact um, an out, a policy outcome through there's lobbying where you go directly in i'm not a lobbyist go in directly in and talk to politicians about why policy x is good or policy x is y is bad whatever it may be but there's also a communications component um so and thinking about ways to influence a policy debate um or advocate in a policy debate using different communications tools it's obviously not as easy as, like I said, working for a majority leader in the Senate, but it's, uh, you start sort of thinking of all the different tools a lot more carefully. Um, and but the one thing I think from politics that I've brought to it is I've sort of, I've got a, a gut on things, if that makes sense. I've seen so many sort of cycles year after year that I can figure out and understand where there are going to be some pressure points or where a story might be or who to think about influencing, what some of those messages will be that will resonate more with policy, some policymakers and others. So that's really what I'm trying to do. It's obviously a different thing. Um, communications on the outside, it's, you know, it's different. Um, and it's not just corporations. It could be some person who just has, strangely, there are a lot of people who are like, I have opinions and I want everyone to hear them. And you're like, okay. There's just a lot of people who want to play and influence um, the public policy debate. Like on the left, you can see someone like that being Tom Steyer. I do not work for Tom Steyer. I think people would be shocked if I said I did. But you also have, the, there are people who want to just be a part of the policy discussion as well. So it's sort of a interesting mix of uh people we and companies we do work for but they're ultimately a lot of them are about sort of trying to influence public policy debate um and finally just i'd like to ask you a question we like to ask all our guests okay. um, which is are there any books or papers or news stories or podcasts that people should look at if they enjoyed our conversation today and want to learn more I'll tell you what i don't read and we'll start with that i mean there are a lot this city is filled with tell-all books um, you know, all the Trump books. I don't read any of them. Um, it's 
they probably are helpful to people trying to understand sort of the mayhem of of the city and all and all of that. They're not really interesting to me. <laughs> um, I'll tell you something I read recently, which I thought was fascinating, was the New York Times in their Sunday magazine did a piece on um, on Fox News and Rupert Murdoch. Um, that was fascinating. Really just demonstrates how a family and one man in particular built a media empire. So that would be something um, I would recommend reading. And also another thing... It's a little counterintuitive. Um, read. I like to read history um, because I also think when you have some perspective, you don't think everything's melting down. Like I just read a book about 17th century England. I mean, granted, a king was beheaded, but <laughs> it's uh, and I've used it a lot thinking about Brexit. Just that history is replete with human beings being human beings and having some context to what's come before, I think is, is very, very important. But like, I just, I do think having some perspective and if you're in the current politics now, understanding, for example, that the 1960s was replete with great hope and great terribleness at the same time, we had political assassinations, understanding some of the previous turmoil that has gone through Mankind's history, I think, helps put some perspective on where we are now. Thank you very much for joining us, and I hope we can talk to you again sometime in the future. That's great. Thank you, Lucy.